Greetings and welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. I am your host, Ahmed Best. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. Um, I want to get right to this one. Damon Packwood is our guest today on the podcast. And Damon is the executive director of Gameheads in Oakland, California. And Gameheads is a not-for-profit organization that teaches game design to um, underrepresented students, uh, mostly African-American and Latino students. And Damon teaches gaming in a way that is so incredibly innovative and interesting that I think everyone will enjoy his mindset and his point of view. There are things that he says in this interview that really line up with where I am and I think where education and science and technology need to be. And a lot of it is being able to express yourself and to express yourself to the people that you're teaching in a language that not only reaches them, but a language that they can understand and grow from. A lot of times in education, teachers feel like students should just get it. And the reason why I really dig the way Damon talks about teaching and his passion for teaching for, ga- for game heads and for gaming is he looks at educating as something that it's his job to make sure that, that his students get it. It's not their job to get it. It's his job to make sure that they get it. And he and does that. He talks about the lack identifying of them culturally being an and being able to bring out personal storytelling. I really want everyone to pay close attention to what he says about the lack of diversity being an advantage. No because it's not as volatile and as controversial a statement as it might sound. And the reason why it gave me cause for pause when I heard it was because I agreed with it as soon as he said it. And it really made me look at the diversity issue differently. And anytime that I get to learn something from someone and have a different point of view is, is just magical to me. So without further ado, this is a really good one. I'm really excited for you all to hear it. Please enjoy Mr. Damon Packwood. The future. Damon Packwood, welcome to the Afrofuturist podcast. What's up? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Been um, looking forward to talking to you for some time ever since um, our resident Afrofuturist Lonnie Brooks suggested I speak with you. And uh, I've been doing a lot of um, reading about what you're doing, and, and I really love it. And before we jump into what you're doing currently, um, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you just about gaming in general. Were you always a gamer? Honestly, you know, that's that's a funny question. I, I would say that, you know, number one, like I, growing up, I was always I always played video games growing up. But who from my neighborhood didn't play right. video games growing up, you know, way back when the Atari came out, like we all played video games. We all played, but we didn't call ourselves gamers. You know what I mean? We just played video games. It wasn't a big deal. Um, so I, I, I remember not, you know, I did play. I used to go to arcades with my brother, you know, and, you know, I'm born and raised in San Francisco. So we used to go to, you know, the Tenderloin and that's where the, the seedy part of town. But there was a great arcade. We would go down there. And I remember the first time seeing Street Fighter and, and Mortal Kombat and all that kind of stuff. But it wasn't until college 
that I started looking at games differently. And so, uh, so yeah, since then, I, I, you know, I, I was a, a film student. Oh, so uh, I think around college, when the PlayStation came out, games got a little bit more sophisticated. And I started seeing the same languages used in film that they were using in video games. And I started to pay attention to them a little more. So I, I wouldn't say that I've ever been a gamer, I, but I've always played games and, and I've always played quite a bit of games. But uh, I don't, I don't, uh, we can get into why I wouldn't identify as a gamer later. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of have the same background. You know, I grew up in New York City and the seedy part of town when I was growing up was Times Square. And there mm -hmm. used to be um, a, a terrible arcade right in the middle of Times Square. And it was like oh. the worst possible environment for a kid that you can be in. <laughs> But me, my brother, and my best friend would just run through this arcade like maniacs. And we were really young. And, mm -hmm. you know, the hookers used to take care of us. Every time we would get, yep. like, in trouble or anytime somebody would bother us, the hookers would be like, hey, leave them boys alone. Right? <laughs> so they would mother us while we were in arcades. But just like you said, like, I didn't consider myself a gamer either, you know, but everybody played games. And I think that term gamer kind of came about right around maybe I would say the late 80s early 90s with like the, mm -hmm. the the updated like the Sega Genesis systems and the Nintendo systems like the Ataris yep. and the ColecoVisions we were just happy to see things on screen mm -hmm. well what was it about um, the narrative aspect of the games on PS4 that that made you raise an eyebrow and go oh wait a minute this is something different well, to be honest with you, man, and, and it's funny how you, you mentioned that uh, the prostitutes used to take care of you because the arcade we went to was next door to the porn theater. Yeah. So it was the same deal. You know what I mean? And everybody used to be like, hey, you stay in the arcade. Don't come down here. Don't come over here. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. They used to take care of you. You know what I'm saying? It's like, don't be out too late. Make sure you get home safe. You know what I mean? Right. Exactly. So it, was, it was the same deal. But but yeah, it was uh it was play you know, I remember I was uh I was in college, my brother called me and he said, Hey, I'm playing this game and I'm stuck. And I'm like, if I describe to you where I'm at in this game, why don't you tell me how to get out of this little, you know, this 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 place that I'm at? Right. And I was like, What kind of game are you playing? Right? Like I had never heard of like a puzzle game before. I, so he started describing this this game, he was like, yeah, the new PlayStation is out. It's it's great, and right. you need to get it. And I'm like, okay, whatever. And so I I told him how to get out this little space. And I remember, in my head, I could see the game. Uh huh. So I was like, I gotta I gotta play what the heck my brother's talking about. And I remember Blockbusters used to rent yeah. video game consoles. Used to go there and rent them. So I went and I rented the PlayStation, and I I rented this game called Resident Evil. And Resident Evil was it. I saw, I played that game and I was like, whoa, what is this? And that blew me away. And then I, I think I, I I was late bringing the game back and I went and I rented it again a couple months later and I played a game called Final Fantasy VII and Metal Gear Solid. And when I played those three games, I said, this is incredible. And I was working at a video store and studying film. 
and I could tell they were borrowing from cinema. So I went and I talked to the owner of the video store and I said, get rid of all of these tapes. I said, you need to get rid of a whole wall and just start renting video games. I'm telling you, it's about to take over. You need to start getting into this business right now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was I was a little bit more right than I thought because he did rent a couple of video games, but people would like rent them and never bring them back. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was the right idea, but the wrong business plan. <laughs> now, growing up in, in San Francisco and watching San Francisco turn into what it is now, especially oh. around um, the internet of things and and just programming culture seeing you know the metaphor from the arcade next to the porn shop to the porn shops and the arcades are gone and the entire yep. industry up there is about the internet of things like what is that like yo that was to be honest with you that whole experience changed my life so I, I, you know, born and raised in San Francisco. San Francisco was just a regular working class town. Like Manhattan, downtown San Francisco was just seedy. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, you know, it, it wasn't a big deal to us. You know, we knew people down there and everybody hung down there. It wasn't, I think that if you weren't from the city and you came down there, you'd freak out. But if you were from the city, it wasn't a big deal. And I, I went to, I had a culture shock. I ended up going to school at UC Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. So I went from seedy, you know, low income community, San Francisco to like UC Santa Barbara, which blew me away. Wow. And then when I came back, I started to see these changes happening in the city and I, I didn't understand what was going on. The funny thing is that arcade and that the movie theater and the porn theater because they were they were back they were next door to each other uh those are now that's where twitter is twitter's down there linkedin is down there box is down there so like that whole cd area is now like every big tech company you can think of and i remember when all of that started i was uh i was working at this 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 organization it's a social enterprise called juma ventures and I think the first thing I noticed was that my students started to act different. I, I was I was building out this like uh, it was an academic program and I had a couple of students and the students would like work at the ballpark at the Giants Stadium and the 49ers Stadium and that sort of thing. And, and while they weren't working, uh, I, I had this I had created this program that would help the students that were working at the ballpark so that they can take that money and apply it to college. So we had a computer lab and the students would come to the computer lab, they would do their work and then they would hang out for a little bit and go home. Mm -hmm. One day I noticed the students were like finishing their homework in 30 minutes. And I thought I had a bunch of geniuses. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, these kids are geniuses. Like what's going on? And then what I learned is that they were just looking up all the answers on the internet. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't, I didn't know that you could like translate Spanish on the internet. You know what I mean? They had Spanish and French homework and they would just do it on the internet. So I think, you know, I noticed that. I noticed they were watching movies that were in the theater on the computer. And I was like, how the heck are you watching a movie that's in the theater right now on the computer and how is that legal? And they were like, 
you know, they were finding like these obscure music, you know, on Napster. And I didn't know what Napster was. I didn't know what MySpace was. I didn't know what Facebook was. I didn't know what any of these websites were. And they were always on the computer. And something occurred to me. And I remember telling everybody that was my age at the time, I said, these kids are going to be smarter than us in about five, six years. Because they, they're speaking a language that we just don't understand. And so I, it, it, the writing on the wall was very clear. I'm like, Damon, in five or six years, you're obsolete. Mm. You know what I mean? So I, I was like, I, had, I quit my job, I think, a year later. And I just started writing about tech and video games. Because video games, I could understand. And I had a blog for about three months. I wrote three times a week. And then I started uh, sending my work out to people. And eventually I got a job as a video game journalist. Oh, and I wanted to get this job because I wanted to get into the tech industry and find out what the heck was going on. Because I just didn't get it. You know what I mean? I was like, this is not San Francisco. You know, there was this whole budding tech industry going. And so, so yeah, I, I was a, a video game journalist for about two years or so. And then I used the work that I did as a journalist to get into uh, a master's program in interactive design. Uh, so that experience, seeing San Francisco change, uh, really changed me. It was the thing that, you know, I, I realized it was like, you know, when we, when I used to study film history and how the film industry grew in Hollywood, I was like realizing like that's exactly what's happening in San Francisco now, which was bugged out because that was like my city. So uh, that's that's kind of what, what led me to, you know, where I'm at now. What gave you that kind of prescient knowledge of knowing so so strongly that these things were going to change? Well, you know, honestly, if you pay attention to history, you could see it. So, I mean, one on on a on a really just on one level, I was just looking at the tech and the video game industry. And I got really interested in the journalism after I met this guy named Sean Johnson who worked for Sony. He started giving me all these websites to look at. And I was just really, you know, because I had studied film history and film theory, I could see a, a, the development of the tech and video game industry the same way that the film industry developed. And so that was, on one sense, that was kind of fascinating. But on the other sense, the thing that was really scary was that I could see a whole different language that was developing because the students that I had, they were not necessarily getting smarter, but they were changing. They were, they were able to sit on the computers for a really long time. They were using words that I didn't understand. They were going to websites I didn't understand. And I started to realize that they were, they were becoming media savvy in the way that we would be media savvy if we went to a school but they were just kind of naturally becoming media savvy, but they had no sort of theoretical understanding of media. That neighborhoods started changing. So culture was changing. So like neighborhoods in San Francisco were changing. So two things happened. Like one, I was like, okay, I'm starting to see white people walk around in neighborhoods that you normally don't see white people walk around. Like I remember when we used to see white folks walk around in certain black neighborhoods, we would roll our window downs and ask them if they were lost because we were worried. We were like, yo, you do realize this is Third Street. Like, 
you can't walk your dog out here. Are you okay? We thought they got lost. And they were like, nah, we moved in the neighborhood. We were like, what? You moved in the neighborhood? What are you talking about? And so that culturally, that was happening. And then also, theoretically, just the way people thought was changing. And so one thing occurred to me after a while. I was like, okay, if tech is the future, and again, I didn't have the language for it, then that means that the future literacy is going to change. And it, it became exciting to me as a as a as a black person, as a black man, as a person of color, because if literacy changes, I, I understood that we were not allowed to like read and write, you know what I mean? In late 1800s, early 1900s, we weren't allowed to read and write. That's what set us behind. So we were not considered literate because we weren't allowed to read and write. So I'm like, okay, well, if we're starting to see a new form of literacy and we haven't determined and, and we're not going to hit the, the bar for this, you know, technology is going to continue to evolve until they say about 2045, 2050. So that means the rules haven't been written. And if that's the case, then, then as folks of color, we need to jump on this now. Otherwise, we're going to be behind yet again. But I think that this is actually an advantage for us because one thing that I was noticing about technology is that it, it embraced the type of learning that folks from my community prefer. Because, you know, with technology, I mean, me and you, right, we're having a conversation right now on computers. So you learn through, you know, eyes, ears, sight, hand. So, you know, where I came from, you learn by doing stuff or you learn by listening. You know what I mean? Your grandmother would tell you how to do something and you would do it. You know, your dad would say, watch me fix this car. You watch him and then you do it. And then when you get into school, schools is more like sit down, shut up, don't copy, don't talk, don't don't collaborate with nobody. And that's completely different in the technology era. I was like, this is actually what we've been waiting for. Like, we want to learn this way. Right. And so that's when that was like the change that I started having and I started to become like more and more interested in technology. You know what I mean? Again, we didn't have the word for it, but that's that's, you know, kind of like what started to shift the way I think about uh, just sort of the technology uh, age. So when you went in to get your degree in what was an interactive uh, design, right? When yes, you, sir. when you went in to get your degree, did you feel like coding was a thing that you had to know that you had to learn? You know, I was, I was skeptical about coding. I was, uh, I thought that one thing that I, I learned, I had a, I had a teacher that once told me, he said, um, you need to know a little bit about everything. Yeah. But you don't have to be good at everything. So coding was definitely important. But one thing that I learned in, in my graduate program, and I was, uh, I was, really active not just in the school but outside of the school mm -hmm. one thing that i learned was that finding a person who can program is really easy finding a person that has a command for the thing that is being programmed is where it's at right so i remember i used to like kill myself to try to learn how to code uh, and I, you know, I definitely know a couple of programming languages, but I wouldn't consider myself to be like an engineer or, you know, I'm not, I, there's definitely people better than me. But one thing that I noticed 
that was more advantageous was the producer, the project manager, the business entrepreneur, the tech entrepreneur, the person with the ideas. Um, because you can always hire somebody. I mean, you can, I, I, when I learned about how much you can pay somebody in Indonesia or, or, or you, know, uh, you know, Eastern Europe to, to be a programmer and you can work with them remotely, you know, and, and pay them very little, you know, compared to what we pay an engineer here, that changed my whole perspective on things. So, you know, I always tell people, if you're a programmer, you're a programmer, go do it. I think programming is, is definitely the language of the future. But uh, one thing that goes underappreciated, especially, you know, in this whole sort of like tech diversity movement is the culture of technology. The culture of technology is very important. Coding is has always been around, but the, the difference between, the, the thing that's different about this technological age is that technology is now a cultural shift. It's, it's changing the way we think, the way we interact, it's changing us biologically, it's changing our laws, it's changing all of that. So if you don't understand that piece, but you just know how to code, you're actually at a disadvantage, in my opinion, especially for people of color, because we're gonna have to vote for things soon. And if you just know how to code, but you don't understand what technology is and how it's changing us, then you know you you're you're going to be participating or not participating in cultural shifts and political shifts and like you know and things of that nature and you don't really know you're not aware of it so that became far more interesting uh, to me than than knowing how to like you know type it some semicolons and some, some apostrophes and things of that nature. <laughs> well, that's something that I talk about a lot because. I see in in the very long term that these, you know, the next kind of assembly line job is going to be the coding job. And mm -hmm. I see a lot of these like quick um, learning pathways to coding as really ghettoizing coding. And mm -hmm. the hard part about it is especially at, at this level where coding seems to be this thing that the only, you know, prodigiously mathematically, ch uh, you know, uh, skilled or, or you have a special talent to do. It seems like this highfalutin kind of thing to do, but it really isn't. And um, I've been really talking about how to get away from this idea that coding is the future and not the ideas behind the code that are the yep. future. Um, how would you try to organize us away from being the blue collar assembly line coders and onto the side of the, the creative class? That's a, that's a great question. So this is something that I've been obsessed with for, oh man, maybe five, maybe six years. Because, you know, I started to, to come up with this sort of concept when I was in graduate school of like, multiculturalism and technology. And it's it's evolved over time. But one thing that I learned is that, you know, the the if you really do your research on all these people that we consider to be tech geniuses, you realize that the word innovation is actually overused. It's yes. this innovation, it, you know, and Steve Jobs even said this. He said that, you know, he would just see two things and put them together. And when people would call him genius, he didn't quite get it. 
He was just like, I just saw this and I saw this and it just made sense for them to go together. And so really what being innovative is in the in the this sort of like tech world is technology is really nothing more than seeing uh, a more convenient way to do something that you're already doing. So, for example, the person that created the calculator wasn't an innovator. They just were like, look, we've been doing math this way. You know what I mean? First, we were doing it by hand. Then we had these little like gadgets that you would just kind of move beads around or what have you. And then we said, hey, we got this little computer and it's a calculator. Why don't we just do the same thing on the calculator again? You're doing math. You just figured out like the technology was made available uh, to do something that you already did different. Or one thing I tell people is Twitter. I'm like Twitter. And the reason why Twitter works is because like Twitter, people don't understand this. Twitter is like it, it, it's like a rumor. It's kind of like, you know, if somebody says hey, a little bird just told me. Right. That's where the idea of Twitter comes from. And they actually studied in the beginning uh, how many characters you would have to have in order for to to tell somebody something and, and they would remember it. If I'm not mistaken, it came out of some research, or at least this is what was discussed in graduate school. It came out of research that the Bush administration did when they were trying to do messaging. They were trying to figure out how many characters uh, do they need to get a message out. And so they took that research and then they came up with Twitter and they added these, you know, and then the UI and the UX ended up becoming really important in the nice little, you know, Tweety Bird sound when you send something out that, you know, that sort of thing. But it worked because it was already something that culturally we understood. You know what I mean? These things have to be seamless. The, the, the iPhone was not innovative. Everybody thinks the iPhone was innovative. The technology that went into the iPhone had been around for years. The difference is that that technology got smaller and Steve Jobs was like, why don't we get all of that technology and put it into one little thing? And then the thing that was innovative about the iPhone was the design of the iPhone. Yes. It was the fact that anybody could pick it up and they knew how to use it. It wasn't the tech, it was the design. So one thing I always tell people is, especially the communities that I serve is I'm like, the thing that is advantageous for us right now is that the lack of diversity in the tech industry is actually an advantage to us because what it means is that the quote unquote innovations that haven't happened will not happen because we, we have to basically translate our culture into the digital space. And if you focus on your culture, and start asking yourself, how do you translate that to the digital space? You will be successful. Because hmm. if you look at all the other sort of innovations, that's basically what people did. They were just looking at things that were in the real world and they just said, how do we translate that into the digital space? They can't copy what people do in the Latino community or the African-American community or you know the East Asian community. Like, but those communities can create these things. Because we know, I'll give you a perfect example. I remember uh, when I was, I was doing a, a project on street art and the, uh, I was creating this app and the idea of the app was that you could, um, you could, if you were in the Mission District in San Francisco and you were near 
a famous piece of street art, it would pop up on your phone and you would hear from the artists. So I used to interview street artists in the mission. And one thing that they told me that they really hated was how people used to run through the community and they would pull out their camera phones and take pictures of them and post it on Instagram. Hmm. And they started feeling like they was in a zoo. And it occurred to me that if these people were tech savvy, they would create an app that was like Instagram, but it wouldn't have, it would have an extra feature in it. And that feature would be more respectful for people. You could set up GPS so that people knew that if you're in this community, you might not want to take a picture of people when they're around. Or if you took a picture of somebody, maybe a piece of history would pop up, right? Hmm. As in, that would be the difference between somebody who comes from a community like the Mission District, which is a Latino community, and somebody who doesn't come from that community. These subtle differences, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's these subtle differences that determine how we create things. Switching gears just a little bit, because I think, you know, what you've set up touches on this in a, in a, in a wonderful way. Where mm-hmm. did um, game heads come from? Well, that's that's uh, you know, and this this will this kind of piggybacks on the last question. Yeah. Um, I, when I started teaching tech, you know, Oakland. I don't know if if you know this, but Oakland is considered to be like ground zero for the tech diversity movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason is because Oakland is sandwiched between San Francisco and Silicon Valley. So San Francisco, traditionally working class community, tech companies come in, working class communities start to, you know, move out of San Francisco. Same thing happens in East Palo Alto. So Oakland started freaking out because they were like, this is going to happen to us. So what happened is uh, Oakland started to become really radical in the sense that everybody, people started leaving their tech jobs, coming to Oakland. A lot of money started pouring into Oakland. And people started coming up with these really innovative ideas of teaching, um, you know, not just young folks, but also older folks, um, tech or coding or what have you. And so I'm in graduate school. I know that this is happening. I live in Oakland. So I'm like, all right, I want to be involved. And I started volunteering my time. And after a while, I realized that, you know, like, like what you were saying earlier, everything was about coding. And it was just something about it didn't really make sense. You know, if you get a room, if you get 50 people and you put them all in a room, how many of them are actually going to grow up to be programmers? Right. You know, programming is, is, is difficult. It's challenging. It's not for everybody. In some cases, it's challenging. In other cases, it's just boring. So it's like, all right, well, if you got 50 people in a room and 15 of them are certified programmers that are going to go off and be, you know, coders, then you just fail the rest of the students. So that doesn't strike me as good math to me. And just morally, it just didn't feel right. So one thing I started noticing is that some of the students that I was teaching were like really, really talented, but they were talented in other areas. Like they were really good artists. Like they were really good at music. You know what I mean? They had uh, really, they, they, they knew what everybody else should be doing, but they really didn't know how to do it, right? So I said, you know what? why don't we focus on video games instead, right? Like I always had this idea of like focusing on video games because I thought that video games em- embraced what uh, uh, 
young African-Americans and Latinos do best. So I was like, you go into black and Latino communities, you'll find dancers, you'll find rappers. Everybody's a rapper. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's a dancer. <laughs> Everybody has a studio and they make beats. Like everybody is like, you know, can, is a poet, a spoken word poet. Everybody knows how to write. You know what I mean? You know somebody who knows somebody who's a famous street artist. Nobody knows that he, that's him because he's trying to avoid the cops. But you see his stuff all over the city. And I said, yo, man, all you got to do is just teach those artists how to use Adobe Photoshop, Illustrator, give them a graphic tablet and a stylus pen. Like, all you got to do is just teach these beat makers how to make music for video games, right? Which is a little bit different. But we haven't, like, that sound that you guys have, it doesn't exist in the game industry. So you guys are actually valuable more in the game industry. Like, these really terrible beats that you guys are making ain't going to work. And ain't going to get you on those top 50 billboards. But it would look great in a game, right? It would sound great in the game. And you could be a great sound engineer. You know how to use the tools. If I teach you maybe a, a few more pieces of software, you could be a game developer. Same thing. And then, and then you take those 15 programmers that are certified programmers and you put them on the games. And so now you've got, you know, you take the writers who are the poets and, the, you know, I mean, you know, poets, you know, rappers, they have a whole world in their head. Yeah. And you sit there and talk to them and they'd be telling you ideas. And you'd be like, yo, that's a great idea. And I was like, why don't we just take all of them and put them on a video game project and, and then teach them to not just teach them tech, but also teach them the things that teach them art, teach them project management, teach them visual art, teach them writing, teach them level design, which is really architecture. Teach them business entrepreneurship, how to work in a team, communication and collaboration, right? And so one thing that I learned is that now that I teach all of those things to my students, they're actually better than the ones that just learn pure coding. Because they're, they're, they're getting a more well-rounded uh, view of technology. So to answer your earlier question of like, how do we get this, get people out of this technological thinking? I thought that the best medium to use was actually video games because it allows the folks that I grew up around to like use their inherent talent. And I think that that inherent talent is what is inevitably going to make them successful in the future. Did you have a hard time getting kids into the course? No, no, not at all. As a matter of fact, what the, the way it started was I told a couple of students I was teaching web design. And I was like mad at students because when I would walk away, they was on their phone either watching videos about games or playing games. So I was like, yo, man, look, if if you just do your work, I'll, I'll teach you how to I'll teach you about video games. I was lying. I, I didn't want to teach them about video games. <laughs> but they kept asking me, like, all right, man, so when are you going to teach us? I was like, all right, all right, tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll teach you tomorrow. Tomorrow will come around and be like, yo, when, you know, when are you going to teach us? So I was like, all right, let's do it at lunchtime because this is my, you know, I'll, I'll teach you for an hour at lunchtime. I figure I'd teach them one thing and then they'd leave me alone. The next day they want to learn more. I was like, all right, we'll do it at lunchtime again. Now I'm not eating lunch. I'm like, this ain't going to work. <laughs> right, right. So I was like, let's do it after class. And then after class turned into Saturday. And then I think what I learned is that engagement was 100%. 
And I was like, look, I want you guys to create a video game level. And they created this video game and a video game level, and it was the best idea I'd ever heard of. It was a, a co-op game about uh, grief. And they were, I was like, What's, wow. what do you mean? They said, well, you know, teenagers deal with grief alone. So we wanted to make a game where you had to play with another teenager because, and it, the idea was these two characters that was in this dream world and they had a mutual friend that died and they had to get through this dream world and all of the obstacles and the enemies were metaphors for their grief. And I was like, I was like, who gave you this idea? Like, who'd you copy? gave you this idea they were like nah nah it was us i was like nah man somebody you copied this idea who gave you this idea they're like nah it was us and they created a website and they had all this artwork and the level was dope and i said okay submit this game to a competition so they did it and they won and it wasn't just any competition it was a white house competition so they got flown to the white house and they presented their game at the White House under the Obama administration. Wow. They won, they won $1,000 in C funding and a trip to E3, free tickets. It's incredible. And I was just like, this is, this is, I said, you guys want to keep doing this? Not only did they say yes, but right after that, they joined a business entrepreneurship accelerator as teenagers to create their own video game company. I was like, this is, I've never heard about this in my life. This is bananas. What was it that you think made them so interested and hungry to do this thing? What was the thing? Because it was immersing their skills. Like one, look, technology is their culture, right? right? It's not, we, you know, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm, I'm you know, 42. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we transitioned into the tech industry. They were born in the tech industry. So this is their culture. And one thing I always tell people is that for us, technology is like an industry. For them, it's, it's their way of life. And I've always said that the, the greatest part of like interactivity, like interactivity is their language. And the, you, you don't get more interactive than a video game. And so somebody basically came to them and said, I will teach you more about what you already know. So they come in knowing 20% of what I'm teaching them at, at the very least, if not more, right? I'm just kind of breaking it down theoretically and breaking it down technologically and things of that nature. But they starting off at 20%, whereas gen with coding, you start off at 0% if you don't know how to code. So that was, uh, that was really cool for them. And then also we're making video games. It's a, it's a technological expression of themselves, right? It also embraces what they're good at. If one of them is a good, you know, level designer, then it embraces that. If another one, if, if you play video games a lot, you're actually a really good game designer because hmm. you just have a library of games in your head. And so if I can break down sort of design thinking, which is legit, you can get certified design thinking. So it's like, they're like, oh, wow, you mean to tell me that there is actually a, an employment path for me that I'm good at because I play video games a lot? I'm like, yes. I think the problem is that most educators just don't understand video games. So they can't translate that into like actual curriculum. And then the most important thing is that how do you teach young African-American, Latino boys and girls? Because that's different. You know what I mean? You got to you got to do it differently. You got to approach it from a different angle. 
Yeah, I always tell this story. My my son and um, my son is eight years old. He'll be nine. Mm-hmm. My son, I should start saying nine years old. By the time this comes out, he'll be nine. So my oh. son is nine years old. And um, I remember him and one of his friends, who's the same age, We they came with my wife and I to uh, a friend of ours house. And a lot of adults there, they were the only two kids. And they sequestered themselves in a corner and they just started looking around the house. And uh-huh. I, I, I was just watching them, just looking at every corner, every door, every door frame, every knob, what was in the house, how it all went together. And I was like, they having this little conversation with themselves and they're like pointing to things in the house. And, I, and so I go up to them and I go, what are you guys doing? Like, what are you talking about? And my son says to me, he says, dad, we can build this house in Minecraft. <laughs> and it blew me away. I was like, they're reconstructing this existing structure in their heads, retaining every bit of nuance Mm -hmm. and are going to rebuild it in Minecraft. Yep. And that blew me away. It was something that I would have never thought about. I would have never considered. I would have never even approached, you know, Mm -hmm. even as an exercise in learning. I would have never have said, hey, guys, look at a room and see if you can build it in Minecraft. Expand your brains. Reading is fundamental. I like I would have never have done it. You know what I mean? And it changed me. It changed my thinking. Yep. What has I I, I, I love that. That's a great story. It's it's amazing. And and it it brings me to this question. What has changed um, in your not only in your teaching when you when since you have, have started Game Heads, but in your outlook mm-hmm. towards how all of this is is going on in the world right now when you're talking about technology and, and learning and teaching and just existing right. in this world. Like what has changed from the beginning of your Game Heads um, idea to uh-huh. now? And how have these kids like really changed your thinking and changed your ideas? Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I Theoretically, I thought it would be a good idea to teach game design. I've, I've always theoretically thought it would be a good idea. But when you see these students, because again, they just think differently than us. And, I, you know, to be honest with you, we probably thought like this when we were kids too. But we just didn't have these tools. Yeah, we didn't have the tools. You know, I remember picking up sticks and, and imagining that bushes were monsters and yeah. trying to like... Yeah and beating the crap out of the bushes and getting in trouble. Right. But they can make that now, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, the, I think the thing that changed for me is when I started teaching game design and development to our students, I was teaching what is tr- it, the way that you traditionally teach game design and development, mm-hmm. right? And I was I would change, I would shift a little bit of it Right. So I'm like, okay, I got a group of, you know, 75% of our students are African American, Latino. The rest of them are Asian Pacific Islander. We might have two white students, right? 25% are girls. So I'm like, okay, I I don't want this to be boring because it shouldn't be boring. So I I would take kind of like the way you traditionally teach video games because, you know, it's, it's taught in universities now. And I would make some subtle changes. I didn't make that many changes. And I noticed that they they were 
engaged, but there was also a, a degree of distance from what I was teaching. Or when I would ask them to produce something, I was a little surprised at what they would produce because what they would produce, they were, they were almost producing something familiar. And what they would do is produce, they would produce something that was more of a copy of what they've seen. Yeah. I found that to be a little bothersome like you know i remember i had a student that said he wanted to make a game about greek mythology and so i was like all right well why and he said well you know he gave me this reason and that reason greek mythology is great and blah 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 blah. i just threw out i said well why not mexican or why don't why not aztec mythology and he was like well mexicans don't have a mythology and i was like whoa what I was like, do you realize that in your community, your mythology is actually drawn on walls? Because you live in a community with like amazing street art. So you, when you walk through that neighborhood, do you realize that you're actually seeing your mythology on the walls? And he didn't know. Nobody had ever taught him. So one thing I noticed is that you had to give our students permission to, 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 to make personal games, right? Like at first, they're tempted to do Flappy Birds or you know, something or, you know, I don't know, something like some anime or manga or something like that. Right. So what I think over the over the years, what I started doing is I started changing the way I taught game design, because to some degree, there was a disconnect. Like they would be initially interested and then they would get bogged down with a lot of didactic. And, and, and they just weren't quite getting it. And so I think one year I started teaching, I said, why, why do we play? It was this lecture, it was like, why we play? And I was like, you know, why do African-American and Latinos play games? And I started to look at our history of play, right? All the way from Capoeira, you know, and how Capoeira is, is sort of looked at as a game, but mm-hmm. Capoeira started as a response to institutionalized oppression. And, you know, I started looking at other examples of these art forms that we've had over years, over over centuries of play. Like breakdancing is a form of play. You know, hip hop is all playful. Yard and you like clowning your friends, you guys get in a circle, your mama jokes, it's play, right? There's rules to it, it's playful, it's a game. It's it's like, you know, so I'm, I was like, you know, the reason why the reason that people give why people play video games in the academic text does not allow for the reason why black folks play video games. And one thing that I learned is that video game, I mean, games for us was always a response to uh, institutionalized oppression. So it's like the reason why a lot of, you know, our folks gravitated towards football, baseball, basketball, and would innovate in football, baseball, basketball, soccer. You know what I mean? The reason why we would do that was because games for us was a way to break out of like these like systems to kind of like oppressive systems. And I understood this because I came out of the hip hop generation and that's all hip hop was. I mean, you know, you from New York, like, there, there, there weren't any, you know, there, there weren't, nobody was teaching art. So everybody was like, yo, we're going to do our own art. We're going to do our own, you know, dance. We're going to do our own music. And, and there were rules to it and people created rules. 
So I think when I started from there, I actually started going deeper and I started looking at, and this is how, this is how me and Lonnie ended up meeting, is I started looking at, um, you know, I started becoming curious about the aesthetics of video games. And I was like, essentially we teach a certain aesthetic when it comes to video games. We teach the video game should look like this and you should make it this way. But when you look at African-American and Latino art in general, especially on the fringes, that's not how we do things. Yes. So I think what has changed recently is that I'm, I'm starting to teach game design and development radically different than the way it is currently taught. And I, once I started doing it, I started seeing like, the students started to get really invigorated. They started getting really curious uh, they started to embrace it a lot more. They started taking more ownership over some of their stories. And it, since then, it's been it's been really fascinating, to be honest with you. Where do you start? What do you do to get them hooked to start thinking of things more personally, thinking of their neighborhoods, thinking of their their specific histories? Where do you start? How do you hook them in? Man, you know, the thing I did. The first thing I do is I start ask I start, you know, again, the first thing I did was start saying, like, why do you play video games? Right. And so then I go back to why do we play games? Like when you look at the top basketball players throughout history, like name your favorite basketball players, name your favorite baseball players, name your favorite football players. And then I go back to studying hip hop and I go back to jazz like you know, tap and, you know, I go back to like, slit, you know, just, I actually, I haven't, I start, the way it starts, it starts with music. Mm-hmm. Like that's where it starts. The center of, of Africa, I mean, I'm fascinated by this guy named Arthur Jaffa. He's a cinematographer. He worked on Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. He did a lot of Jay-Z's videos. He's brilliant. And he has this this idea called uh, he has this idea that if you were to look at any art form that, that have undoubtedly did their thing, like you cannot deny them. If black folks disappeared from planet Earth, they would go down in history. Is music? Like music is just you cannot touch us when it comes to music. You just can't, right? Like music is what we just we you know jazz, blues, hip hop, rock and roll. Like music is our thing. So I always start with music. I say, let's start from work songs and then let's move our way up to blues. Then let's move our way up to jazz. And then, and, and I even start looking at, let's look at like Mexican jazz. Let's look at Cuban jazz, like all of it. And I, I get them, I say, let's study what is unique about jazz. The, the idea of improvisation and how radical that was. Um, the idea of of like doing graf- doing artwork on buildings and how radical that was. The idea of like adding color in the art and how radical that was. And then I get them to recognize that those were um, aesthetics that were tied to culture. Like black folks made those decisions because they culturally made sense. Like we weren't we didn't just wake up and and, and turn into geniuses. They culturally made sense, so we did them, and then they were just very appealing. It was, you know, and so I, I start there, 
And then what we start doing is I created a matrix of like, what would um, aesthetics, and we don't even call it aesthetics because in our communities, we wouldn't say aesthetics, we would say style. Like, yo, I like your style. Right. You know, I wouldn't walk up to you and be like, yo, man, I like your aesthetic. I'd be like, yo, man, your style is, <laughs> right. that style is dope, you know what I mean? Right. So I say, the first thing I do is I'm like, I, I change the language. I say, look, use whatever language to describe tech that you want. I, I might teach you a word, but if you don't like the word, come up with a different word, and that's the word we're going to use, right? Because if we start borrowing language, the language is important because language lends itself to what you create. Yes. So I'm like, you, use your language. Don't use any language that you hear. Use whatever language you want. That's what made you, hip-hop so unique. It was a completely different language, and it took 15 years for people to figure out what folks were doing in New York. They still trying to figure out what they were doing, yeah. right? So I'm always like, okay, I want you guys to just create something that comes from you, but then study what came before and what was so unique and radical about it. And and th that's kind of where where uh, you know what we're playing in right now is is looking at that matrix and you know things like um, the the importance of color, the importance of abnormativity, the importance of like dissonance. Um, the importance of improvisation, um, you know, the importance of, of cool, you know what I mean? And like, there, there's a book called, uh, uh, on cool where the, there's an essays written that break down like what cool actually is. Mm -hmm. So like, let's break down cool. Like, let's, let's look at cool people throughout history. Why are they cool? You know what I mean? So like, you know, I, I think we start there and that's the reason why going back to your earlier question. I don't call my students gamers. You know, when you Google gamer and you look at the images, they don't look like my students. Right. They don't look like me. So that's why we came up with the word game is because it was like it was like a throwback of sneakerheads. Right. And so I was like sneakerheads is familiar. It's just people we know that like sneakers. So I was like, you guys just like video games. So let's call you guys game heads instead of gamers. Right. Uh, same thing with. Know, the word geek and nerd like in these communities you can't walk around and be like yo that's my geek what's up my nerd like <laughs> yeah don't work you know so i'm like I, i'm like i don't and i'm like yo grandmaster flash was a nerd if you want to be technical about it but in in the 80s nobody would call grandmaster flash a nerd nope around her african bambata like they would be nerds today they would be technologists today yes they would be futurists today. But in the 80s, they had their own vocabulary. And I'm like, that's what we need to focus on. We need to focus on our own vocabulary and our own way of expressing these things and stop getting tied up with the technology era. We've been doing this. You know what I mean? Those were makers, but we don't call them makers. Right. Is there a difficulty with putting a profit motive behind the creativity? Are some of your students looking to get paid or do mm -hmm. th is that is that uh, something that you involve in the process or do you really yep. focus on just making the thing and getting it out just as as a creative process? Do you think about and uh, talk about profit and money? Yeah. So to be honest with you, man, that's a that's a tricky subject. You need to be kind of I think you have to be on the edge. So the, the thing that's very fortunate for me is um, Gameheads is out of uh, is is located at the 
official Youth Impact Hub location. And Youth Impact Hub teaches, has a business entrepreneurship fellowship. So our students can actually enroll into the business fellowship. And what they do is they get a business mentor and those folks can teach them how to create their own business plan. And they can actually create a business and get seed funding for their business. So every year we have a cohort of students that join. I think we've, our students have created three businesses so far, mm. two video game businesses and one IT company out of, uh, out of the Youth Impact Hub Business Accelerator. And they've gotten seed funding and, and that whole nine yards and we let them use the space. So we, you, we definitely talk to them about business. We have an IT business actually where we allow our students to get money on, uh, to use their tech skills to take on like IT and DevOps contracts. And we show them how to, how to write a contract, how to negotiate, even negotiate with us. You know what I mean? Yes. Like we're not trying to employ them. We're like, yo, if I, if I, I'm gonna offer you $25 an hour, you have the option to say, no, I want to get $45 an hour. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to show you what happens when you ask for $45 an hour and I offered you $25 an hour, like you don't get the job, right? Like, so I'm trying to teach them about how the market works. You have to understand your value. Cause the first thing that they do is they're like, oh, I can, I can, I can pick how much I want to get paid. Well, I want to get paid a hundred dollars an hour. And I'm like, all right, I'm gonna tell the client that you want to get paid a hundred dollars an hour. And the client is going to say no. And now you know what the market is. Like right. that's not your market value, right? So I think that on one end, you definitely have to teach them like business, the practical application of it. And what we do that is we do that hands-on by actually letting them get their hands dirty. We prioritize college. So all of our students, we tell them, you need to go to school, you need to go to school, you need to go to school. So we have students now who are at UC Santa Barbara studying math, UC Santa Cruz studying uh, interactive media and game design, USC, uh, we've got CS majors at, you know, uh, San Francisco State, San Jose State, et cetera, et cetera. So school's a priority. Like, you've got to go to school. You've got to get a well-rounded education. But the other end is the creative end. And what I tell people is that if you embrace the things that make you personally and or culturally unique, you will make something fresh. And I always, and that's why we study history of, like, of, of what African-Americans and Latinos have created throughout history that, have, that were fresh, you know what I mean? When they started, they were completely unique and it was completely unique to those people culturally and personally. And now I'm like, look at where they are now, you know what I mean? And so I keep telling them like, if you really focus on you, your community, your family, your culture, and how you can be sort of innovative in that space, because the lack of diversity is actually an opportunity for you. That means it's a lack of diverse ideas. And I'm like, if you marry that with this kind of hustle that we're teaching you and these and this business acumen, you will be successful. That that's that's our theory. Where do you see game heads going? Like what what is your hope for it? What is your wish for it? To be honest with you, um, what I on a on a very basic level, I, I want to see is multiply. Um, I get a lot of requests from other cities. Uh, right now, we're only in the East Bay, so I want to see the organization grow for sure, uh, so we can attract <clears throat> more students 
you know, uh, I would love to see what a game heads program would look like in Harlem, in Brooklyn, in New Orleans, in Charlotte. You know, I mean, we know how talented our folks are, uh, those communities are over there in Albuquerque, in Chicago. Like, we know how talented they are. So I would love to see what kind of ideas that they can come up with. Um, but on the other uh, level, I think one thing that, that is my pie in the sky is that I want to um, get our students to a place. Once, once I get a, a crop of students that are really, really good and, you know, coming out of college, I want to hire them and I want to start my own tech company. Oh, that's brilliant. That's really brilliant. That's what I want. That's a great idea. That's a really great idea. Yeah. Um, so I got one more question for you, and this is our, our kind of stock Afrofuturist podcast question that we ask, um, pretty much all of our guests. And oh. here is the question. If mm-hmm. you had the ability to write the headline of the New York times in 10 years, what would your headline say? Oh, New York Times. Yes. Wow. I hope I'm not like in Trump trouble. <laughs> I don't think any of us could be in that kind of trouble. <laughs> uh, in 10 years, you know, honestly, um, I would love, I can't necessarily think of what the headline would be, but it would be something like I'm, I'm a paraphrase. I'm, I'm not, I'm not the best wordsmith in the world, uh-huh. but it would be something akin to, you know, uh, a young tech educator from Oakland redesigns game development education. Yes. I want to see the, the black studies to final studies equivalent to video game education. That has not happened yet. And it's, it's due. We've had games since the eighties. And we have never heard anything remotely close to, uh, you know, I, I, I grew up around black studies professors and Chicano studies professors, and we don't have the equivalent of that in video games or tech. That's, yeah. that's what I want my headline to say, something like that. That's beautiful. I want somebody to call me a professor in a couple of years. Yeah, right. I want, that's what I want to, I want to hear, I want to hear, hey, professor, that's what's up, man, man. that's what you made it. Yeah, well, I think that's going to happen. I don't think that's going to be a, I I don't think that's a pie in the sky wish. I think you're well on your way to that. I appreciate it, man, appreciate it. Damon Packwood, thank you so much for joining us. This was an incredibly inspiring um, and and thoughtful conversation. Uh, Tell everybody where we can find you. Um, you guys can find us at gameheadsoakland.org. Uh, our Twitter feed is we are at we are gameheads. Uh, and um, if you want to play some of our students' uh, video games, they're posted up on itch.io on the Gameheads page. I, I believe it's itch.io slash gameheads. Uh, and most of our demos will be on there. Be on the lookout for some stuff on Steam. Perfect. Thank you so much, Damon. We will speak to you very, All right, very man. soon. Hey, thanks for having me. You're awesome. Thank you for listening to the Afrofuturist podcast. If you like what you hear, 
please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be a sponsor of the show, please contact me at Ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or at Ahmedbest on Twitter. If you have any ideas of any great guests that we would like to talk to on the Afrofuturist Podcast, please contact me again at Ahmedbest at theafrofuturistpodcast.com or contact me on Twitter at Ahmedbest. Thank you all for listening again, and I'll see you next time.